following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're in Acts chapter 9 this morning is where we're going to be. And so if you've got a Bible, you can pull it out. And we've already heard the story, right? So we had the Boost Kids read the story to us this morning, which was fantastic. I think there's about 50 of them. I was trying to count on that video. Amazing. And that's, that's just our primary age uh, kids ministry. So they've told us this morning's story. They've read the story. That was from the message version of the Bible. Uh, but we're in Acts 9. And this is actually a great point to pick up the series. So if you haven't been with us this far, this is kind of a new beginning within the book of Acts. Kind of a new, new start, a new trajectory within this book. Uh, because from this point in the book of Acts, the action really all revolves around this one guy named Saul. And uh, we've, we've met him before, uh, back when uh, we had the story of Stephen, but really now Saul kind of becomes the dominant player in the book of Acts. And of course, Saul, we, we know that guy more commonly by the name, what? Paul, yeah, Paul, Saul. And, and the reason for that, by the way, is not because God changed his name. Okay, it's a common mis conception. It's not that he went from Saul to Paul. He was always Saul and he was always Paul. He had two names, right? Saul was his Jewish name. That was his, he, that was his Hebrew name. And Paul, Paulos, that was his Greek name or his Roman name. That wasn't uncommon in his day to have these two names. And it sort of represents the fact that here's a man who lived in two worlds, he lived in the, in the world of the Jews and the Hebrew world and the world of Israel and the law and Judaism. But he also moved easily within the Greek world, within the broader Roman world and Roman culture. And that made him perfectly positioned for this mission that God was going to call him to. So that'll unfold in the weeks to come as we look at some of the stories to do with Paul. But let's come back today to this radical event that happens in, uh, in Saul's life, Paul's life. I'm probably just going to use those names interchangeably today. I don't think I can stick with just one. So you'll hear a bit of Saul and a bit of Paul. But Acts chapter 9, the first verse of this chapter is kind of a, a pretty vivid description of who Saul was before he met Jesus. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's pretty strong language. When you think about Saul before he became a Christian. Just think about who he was before he met Jesus. I've said before, I think the best word to describe Saul before he became a Christian is the word terrorist. Right? And I don't use that word flippantly. I don't use that word casually. I mean, like if you look at modern day terrorism groups like ISIS, like Boko Haram, you can draw a line from groups like that back to groups like the one Paul belonged to. People like Paul. He was a terrorist. A terrorist is a person who uses violence for religious purposes or political purposes. That's exactly what Paul was doing. It's exactly who he was. He belonged to this ultra strict, hardline, extremist group within Judaism called the Shammai Pharisees. And this was a group that believed it was justified to use violence against people if they were leading Israel astray. 
So if there was a group there that they believed was leading Israel away from God, if they were leading Israel away from faith, if they were contaminating the, 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 the fidelity of Israel, then it was justified to use violence upon these people in order to purge Israel from that kind of influence. These, these kinds of people needed to be stamped out. So Saul looked at these Christians, these crazy Christians who were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, made this audacious claim. And for Paul, that was total blasphemy. That was just, he couldn't even brought himself to say the words, to claim that, to claim that this man, this crucified man, I mean, if you are crucified, if you're put on a Roman cross, you are by definition cursed of God. And so to claim that a man like that was the long-awaited great Messiah of Israel, for Paul, that was just totally blasphemous, utterly blasphemous. And people that claimed that, they needed to be dealt with in the, in the most severe terms. They needed to be gotten rid of however that needed to happen, including by violent means if necessary. And so Paul took it upon himself to do it. He wouldn't have been the only one, but you know, imagine what it was like. Paul would have shown up at your door, he would have forcibly, if there was a Christian, identified Christian in that home, he would have dragged that person. He would have had a few enforcement people with him, but he would have dragged that person out of their home, would have stuck them on a horse, taken them away, put them probably through some sham trial and thrown them in prison. This was horrendous stuff. I mean, this, have, this has shades of, of you know, the Nazi roundup of the Jews in the early 20th century. This is the kind of atrocity that Paul was, was engaged in here. He would drag mothers away from their children. He'd drag husbands away from their wives. He, he busted up families. He broke marriages up. He put people in prison. He was probably responsible for numerous beatings and probably more than one murder. We know there was at least one, Stephen, Paul was there that day, and there were probably more. I mean, this was a, a murderous, bloodthirsty, violent terrorist, a domestic terrorist, but he was a terrorist. That's who Paul was. And the worst thing of all is that Paul honestly believed when he was doing all this that he was honoring God. That he believed by going to someone's house, dragging that person out, chucking them in jail, that's one less Christian in the world, one less Christian going around spreading this kind of teaching. And he believed that was, that was an act of worship towards the God of Israel. That was honoring to God. That's how screwed up his paradigm was. That's, that's where Paul was. But that's earnestly and honestly what he believed. That was his world. That was Saul the Pharisee. So, if you think there's someone out there that you know who's beyond God's reach, just remember Saul. Because one day everything changed. One day Saul was on the road to Damascus, heading to the city. He decided to, to spread the net, try to get some Christians in other cities as well. And he had orders from the high priest to do that. So he was, he was sanctioned to go and get some Christians in Damascus, find out who they were, drag them back to Jerusalem, stick them in prison. And while he was on his way to Damascus, about the middle of the day, this bright light shone down from heaven. Blinding light. Saul fell to the ground. Didn't know what was going on. But he looked up and, and he cried out, Lord, who are you? And he didn't, by the way, when he says Lord, he didn't mean God. He didn't know this was Jesus. He's not talking about the second person of the Trinity. He just The word Lord is just anyone who's a superior rank. So he's just trying to be respectful. Lord, who are you? And the voice comes back. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
And in that one awful moment, Saul realized this Jesus, this Jesus who he hated, this Jesus whose followers he had been trying to purge from the earth, was alive. Alive and well and appearing to him now. Just imagine what a, what a shocking moment that was for Saul. Probably a terrifying moment because he would have thought Jesus was about to smite him for everything that he'd been doing. But he suddenly realized that these blimmin' Christians are right. Jesus is alive. They, they had it right all along. And Jesus says to Saul, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. And so Saul gets up, couldn't see anything, been blinded by this light, blinded by God. But he, but he got up, one of the people with him, helped him to his feet and walked him the rest of the way into Damascus. He found a place to stay there and he just stayed put for three days and three nights. Didn't eat anything, didn't drink anything. We don't, we don't know much about what happened during those three days and three nights. All we're told in the passage is that he was praying. But just imagine for a minute that first night in Damascus. Just imagine. I like to imagine Paul there sitting on his bed that night in Damascus in the darkness because he was blind. And you, what I can imagine him doing is just in his mind going back over all these verses in the Old Testament. Because he, remember, he was a Pharisee, right? So he knew his Old Testament. He had it memorized. The entire Old Testament It's pretty impressive. He had the whole thing memorized. It was in his head. So he didn't need a C to be able to read that. He just had it there. And I can imagine him sitting on his bed in the darkness, just going back over verse after verse after verse and coming to this realization that there was a lot more going on in the Old Testament than he had ever realized. And you just imagine him reading, reading a scripture like Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And just imagine Saul thinking back, a verse he knew so well, and now suddenly he realizes it was about Jesus the whole time. And he'd never seen it. I mean, Paul was a Pharisee. Like the law was his life. His job was to explain the Old Testament to everybody. And he had missed the heart of it. He had totally missed the heart of it. You can imagine him just going over verse after verse and realizing it was always pointing to Jesus. And so Saul the Pharisee, in his mind's eye, had to go back again and read the old story and read it in a fresh way, now seeing how it always pointed towards Christ as its fulfillment. And what Paul started to realize as he sat there in that room for those three days is that this Jesus, this was the one whom God had appointed. This was now the one whom God had sent as the savior of humanity. This was the Messiah of Israel, unavoidably crucified and risen. This was now the one whom God had made Lord of all. And what that meant, here's what Paul, and I think it took Paul a lifetime to work this out. But what Paul started to realize, if that's true, then now the way to be right with God is, can no longer be based on this law. It can no longer be based. I mean, Paul says in, in, in some of his writings, he had a righteousness based on the law. 
He had that kind of righteousness, but suddenly he realizes it's like the whole foundation is gone. That's not the way to God anymore. That's not the way to be right with God anymore. It's not by observing all of these commandments. There's a whole new foundation now to being right with God, and it's this man, Jesus. It's by faith in him through the grace of God that's revealed in Jesus. And Paul came to see gradually that it's by grace that we are saved, not by the law. Can you hear some of those passages in his letters coming out there? Yeah. When Paul writes that stuff, you know, in Ephesians and elsewhere, it's never just theology. It's always personal because he experienced it. He encountered it on the Damascus Road. And then finally, after three days, Ananias comes along. Ananias was a Christian who lived in Damascus. And uh, he was one of the guys that Paul had come to put in prison. So God says to Ananias, I want you to go and find Paul and lay hands on him. Ananias probably wanted to lay fists on him. But God says, just go and lay hands on Paul. I mean, imagine that experience for Ananias turning up, laying hands on this guy who'd come to put you in prison. It'd be amazing. But Ananias says, brother, brother Saul, I've come so that God might fill you with his Holy Spirit. You might see again. And as he, as he says those words, something like scales fall from Paul's eyes. He can see again, representing, of course, the journey from spiritual blindness now to spiritual sight. That's what's going on. Paul gets up. He's baptized. And this Pharisee, this terrorist, becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus and is added to the family of faith. It's an amazing story. It's an incredible story. A guy who was a terrorist, a bloodthirsty, murderous terrorist, is radically transformed. And, and he doesn't just become a Christian. He goes on, of course, to become a missionary, goes on to become a church planter, goes on to become a pioneer of the church and the, and the faith out into the Roman Empire, pushed the gospel outside the boundaries of where it had been previously into new territories. We're all here this morning, those of us that aren't Jewish, because of Paul and his missionary endeavors. We owe him a debt of gratitude 2,000 years ago for what he did. God turned the life of this terrorist around, made him a missionary. But do you know, that is not the most amazing thing about this story. The most incredible miracle in that story of Acts 9 is not that God turned a terrorist into a missionary. The most amazing miracle is that God turned a sinner into someone who was saved by the grace of God. That's it. Because the same grace that was at work in Paul's life that day is the same grace that's at work in our lives and available to every one of us today. Yeah, the details of Paul's story are amazing. It's extraordinary. But at the heart of it is a sinner saved by the grace of God. It's the most incredible miracle on earth. It's the miracle that we call conversion. It's the journey of someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it is the greatest miracle in the world. It's, it's bigger than the parting of the Red Sea. It's greater than creation itself. The miracle of one life that is brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The miracle of one person who is, who is brought out of the clutches of the evil one, brought into the arms of the everlasting God. The miracle of one person who comes from spiritual blindness through to being able to see for the first time. The miracle of one life that is brought from death 
where the old self is crucified with Christ, done away with, and that person is raised again, born again to new life in faith, reconciled to God. That is the greatest miracle imaginable. And it didn't just happen to Paul. It has happened to billions of people down through the last 2,000 years, all the way down to today, right? It's a miracle. Every time it happens, might not look like a miracle, might look really ordinary, but every single time God changes a human heart, turns it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that is the greatest miracle imaginable. In the 18th century, there was a guy working on a slave ship in the British Empire. It was a ship that came to Africa to collect slaves and then transported them to the, to the colonies, to the British colonies. And, and the conditions on the ship were horrendous. And then they were sold into slavery into equally horrendous conditions. And this guy was just working there as an officer on the ship. And on, on the way, on the voyage back, they were heading back to Ireland. On the way back, they, they had a huge storm. And they thought all was going to be lost. And in the midst of it, this guy, he wasn't a Christian, but in desperation, he cried out to God, just prayed to God, God save us. And the storm died down. And that guy thought this was amazing. Thought that was an act of God. So he found a Bible, started reading it. Started praying like he'd never prayed before. His heart started drawing closer and closer and closer to God. By the time that ship got to Ireland, that man had given his life to Jesus, became a, became a follower of Christ. And he went on to write songs and hymns, and he reflected in one song back on that time when he became a Christian. And he wrote the words, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What was his name? John Newton, yeah. Writer of Amazing Grace. In the early 20th century, it looked like a, a professor of English literature at Oxford University. A brilliant guy, brilliant scholar, crazy smart. And he'd already been on this long, long, long intellectual journey towards the Christian faith had all sorts of arguments, had all sorts of debates, all sorts of objections, but gradually they'd been taken away, often through the influence of some friends that he'd had, which had been a huge part of his, of his spiritual journey. But his was a very intellectual journey towards Christ, and it sort of gotten to the point where he could no longer deny the reality of God, and he could no longer deny the claim of Jesus to be the Son of God. And he was wrestling with this. He was wrestling with it intellectually as well as emotionally and personally. And he wrote this in his diary, reflecting on that time in his life. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. What was his name? C.S. Lewis, yes. Dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven, as he described it, because he couldn't deny any longer the reality of the Christian faith. He wasn't drawn in emotionally, but he believed if Jesus is the Son of God, then he has a claim on my life that I simply can't ignore. He gave his life to Jesus. In the 1970s, as a young boy growing up in Ireland, in the midst of all the religious violence that was going on at that time, he had a Protestant mother and a Roman Catholic father. So he was right in the middle of it, right in the middle of all that tension. When he was 14, his mum died. 
And she died at the graveside of her own father. If you can imagine that, at, at her father's funeral, so his body was being lowered into the ground and she had an aneurysm and died on the spot. And that was a deep, deep grief for that young boy, 14 years old, a deep grief that he carried with him for the rest of his life. But it was also the catalyst for him becoming a Christian. And from then on, he channeled his faith into his music and in some of his songs wrestles with the questions of faith along his spiritual journey. What was his name? Bono. Come on, Bono. Now, we could go on and on and on. I could tell you hundreds of stories, thousands of stories. Those are just three because they're really well-known people. But there have been billions and billions and billions of stories. And everyone's different. Every single story is different. Some are completely undramatic. Some are really, really mundane. But at the heart of it is a heart that has been radically transformed by the grace of God. And there's nothing mundane about that. I stack my own story up next to those three and it feels completely useless. I mean, it feels so boring. I've often felt like my story is really boring. I grew up in a Christian home, in a Christian family. I went to church. I got baptized. I can't even look back and see one particular day when I became a Christian. Some of you like this? You can't, I can't look. There was, no, there was no sort of altar call. There was no one moment when I prayed one big prayer. It was just I can look back and I can see over about three or four years, between about 11 and 14, I grew into this relationship with Jesus and owned it for myself. And then when I was 14, I got baptized. And I remember coming up out of the waters of baptism and just having this overwhelming desire to know Jesus. Just simple, but just really just all-consuming desire. All I wanted was to know Christ. All I wanted was to serve him. I just wanted to be totally sold out for Jesus. And I've come to appreciate my story a bit more, I think, in recent times. Because I think it's the story of many church kids to get to that crisis point where you've got to decide, is it going to be mum and dad's faith now, or is it going to be my own? You know, some of you that are teenagers here, young adults, that's a, that's a decision that you've got to make because God doesn't have grandchildren, right? He's only got children. He wants to know you as you. It's not you vicariously through your parents. So there's that invitation to each of us, and I had to, I had to receive that for myself. And then on New Year's Day this year, Anna and I got to witness again that miracle, that miracle of conversion with our boy Josh. And we, I was speaking at a Christian conference in Rotorua. And uh, that we put the kids into the programs there. Morning and evening, they had programs for the kids. And on the, it was the evening of New Year's Day. And Josh came back from the kids' program. And he said, oh, Mum and Dad, I'd like to have a chat about becoming a Christian. So we put the other kids to bed. And then we sat down on Josh's bed and just had a chat with him. And he'd heard some stories of other people that had become Christians that were shared with him that night. And, and he'd kind of known some Bible stories because we'd read some Bible stories to him over time. But, you know, he'd kind of got to this point of feeling like, oh, I want to make this decision for myself. And so we talked that through. And, and then we just encouraged him to pray himself rather than us just praying. We just said, well, you just talk to God. You just tell him what's on your heart. And so in his own simple words, he prayed a prayer, just acknowledging his own sin and asking Jesus into his heart and giving his life to Christ. And then Anna and I prayed after he'd prayed. And uh, man, that moment, you know, just praying for my boy and giving thanks to God that he had been brought from darkness to light. And just thanking, I remember thanking God that Josh 
was now not just my son, but he also was now my brother in Christ. Every time it happens, it's amazing. Every single life that is touched by the grace of God, it's an incredible, incredible miracle. And I know many of you in the room have got a story like that. Many of you have been on that journey, maybe over a long, long period of time, or maybe it was in a moment. But you can think back. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, just think back now in your mind's eye. Just as I'm talking, think back to that time. Think back to what that was like. If you can remember it, maybe it's pretty, pretty foggy. But give it a go. Think back to that time. Think back to those years. Maybe it was just last week. Maybe it was decades ago. But think about what that time was like. Because I think we need to start listening to our stories. We need to start learning from our stories. There's tremendous power in our own testimonies, for our ongoing life, ongoing life of our church, ongoing life of faith. Let me just quickly mention three ways in which our stories have power in our lives. Firstly, our stories are powerful because they remind us of who we were. You think about Paul. Paul never forgot who he was. You know, you might have thought a guy like that, after he becomes a Christian, he would want to completely erase the first part of his life. And never speak of it again. I would. And yet you read his letters time and time and time again. He's bringing it up. Like he's writing it down. He's talking about, you. I used to be a persecutor of the church. He calls himself a violent man. Like he's written it down and we're reading it 2,000 years later. He was happy for that to be known. Not just because... He was trying to be shocking or provocative, but because it reminded him and it reminded his congregations of that he was who he was only by the grace of God and that it was God's work in his life bringing him from being a zealous persecutor of the church to a person saved by the grace of God. And I think, you know, sometimes as Christians, we feel like, oh, we're so embarrassed of who we were before I became a Christian. I don't even want to think about it. I don't want to talk about that, that life, all those, that stuff I get up to, whatever it was. I think we need to learn to tell the first part of our stories. I think we need to be okay with that. Not so that we feel terrible about it, not so that we go on a guilt trip, but so that we can remember the incredible grace of God that has been extended to us. So that we can be reminded it's only by grace that I've been saved. There is no way that I ever deserved an ounce of this. It is all grace. It is sheer gift. It is just God's pleasure that I'm saved. Nothing that I ever could have done. It's okay to remember the first part of your story. It's good to remember who we were because it reminds you of just how amazing God's grace is. Second reason our stories are powerful is because they return us to our first love. Our stories return us to our first love. Now, I don't mean that in a soppy romantic sense. I mean it in the sense of Revelation 2.4, which says, you have forsaken your first love. It's pretty convicting. But I think this happens. When you start the Christian journey so often, you're full of, full of fire. You're full of passion. Do you remember that? When you first became a Christian, some of you? Yeah, you want to change the world, tell everyone about Jesus. You're just going crazy. Fantastic. You had this amazing fire. And then over time, over the years, what's happened? The fire's just gone down and down and down. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, it's just an ember. Maybe there's not much to it. And you sort of wonder, how how has this happened? Go back to your story. Go back to that time when you first handed your life over to Jesus. Ask yourself why you did it. Reimagine, what was that like? Because by taking us back to that moment, God reminds us of our first love, who is Jesus. 
And he helps us to renew again our passion and our fire for Christ. I remember that passion that I had as I came up out of the waters of baptism and that desire that I had to live for Jesus. And I hold on to that because I don't feel that as much today. A lot of the time that does wane, but I go back in my mind's eye to that time. And I imagine myself again walking out of that baptism pool and I ask God again to stir in me that same passion that I had back then. I don't want less of it. I want more of it. But we go back in order to go forwards. We think back on the grace of God in order that God would renew our faith, that he'd stir our hearts again, bring us back to our first love, fan into flame again that fire that maybe has almost died out for you. But God is saying, I want to stoke that again today. I want to fan that flame, renew your first love. And finally, our stories are powerful because they remind us of how far we've come. So often as Christians, we beat ourselves up because we look at how far we've got to go. We feel horrible. We see everything that's wrong in our lives and we realize there's so much yet to do. But as you look back over your life and you think about your story, you're reminded that God's already been at work in your life, maybe in ways that you haven't even seen or appreciated before. As you look back, maybe, maybe you just became a Christian recently, but maybe you look back over decades. You can see the hand of God in your life, can't you? And you can see how he who began a good work in you is carrying it on and will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And you realize, yeah, God's been chipping away at me. God's been working on me. And I've resisted it and I've been selfish and I've gone down all sorts of rabbit holes. But he's still been faithful. He's been there. God's been at work. When you look back, you can see God's faithfulness. You can see God's goodness. You can see his providence. And it gives you confidence to know that just as his grace has led you this far, his grace is going to lead you home. So we need to learn to listen to our own stories. And I want you to hear these more stories this morning. Stories from our own church community, because it's good for us to hear this. It's good for us to hear these stories. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. It's a good thing. It encourages our own heart and it encourages the hearts of people that hear it, right? So I'm going to ask Craig and Sarah Getz to come up, part of our church family, the Getz family. They're going to come and just share their own stories with us. I've just asked them to do this, not because their stories are particularly spectacular or amazing, but just because I want us to hear the stories of grace. I want us to hear this miracle at work in people's life. Craig and Sarah, part of our church family and also part of our life group. So come and share your stories with us, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, <clears throat> So I grew up here in Albany, actually. I'm the youngest of three. I've got two older brothers. And um, I had a really good upbringing. I had lovely, loving parents who were really good role models to us. They uh, had integrity and good character. And you could say they demonstrated Christian, role uh, Christian values to us, but it wasn't actually a Christian household. Uh, they didn't have a relationship with Jesus um, and so that faith was not demonstrated to me. A relationship with Jesus wasn't demonstrated to me growing up. And so, <clears throat> so that part of my life was missing. And I had always wondered about God. I think most people do. I was curious and hungry to know what the purpose of life was and why are we here. And, um, but I didn't act on that. I didn't know what to do with that. I just carried on with life. And then uh, one day when I was 18, I um, was working as a receptionist and a young girl came in who was actually my age 
and my dad had taught her maths at high school, and we got talking, and um, she was a keen evangelist, you could say. She was waiting for someone like me, and she, um, we were just talking, and uh, she, she asked in the, our first conversation, do you go to church? Do you believe in God? And I said, no, but I've always wondered about God. I've sort of been wondering about going to church. And so she pulls out a tract, which we don't really do these days, but it's like a little mini pamphlet, which talks about how you can get saved. And I remember the tract very clearly. It said sad, question mark, happy, question mark, excited, question mark, lonely, question mark. Wherever you are, God can meet you where you're at. And, um, and she, she said, I'll, I'll pick you up. You should come to church with me. I'll pick you up on Sunday night and we'll go together. And I was waiting for someone to invite me. That's how I would describe it. I was waiting for the invitation because I was curious about God, but I didn't know what, I wasn't going to go to church. I wasn't going to walk into church on my own. That's the most terrifying thing I could imagine. But she invited me and she made it easy for me. And so, um, so I did. We, she picked me up on Sunday night and we went to church and I received Jesus into my heart that Sunday night. And I remember feeling a huge sense of relief that what I'd been searching for, I found. And so from that day on, I called myself a Christian. But it's been a real journey of getting to maturity from that point. Um, I went forwards and then backwards and then forwards again. And I'm still on the journey of maturity. But my challenge to myself is that there are other people, not just youth and young adults, but adults um, who are just like me and waiting for the invitation, they're wondering about God, but they don't know what to do with that, or they're too scared to make that step forward, and they're waiting for the invitation. So my challenge to myself is to remember who I was back then and invite people along and, and extend the invitation to, to come to church or to know God. So, yeah, that's me. Morning, everyone. Um, just by way of some background, my family and cultural context meant that I was always open to a wide range of spirituality, but I, for, the mo for most of my life, I never knew I had a sin problem. I didn't realize that I couldn't save myself, and I didn't really understand what had taken place at the, at the cross, what the sacrifice Jesus had made for me, but I was certainly quite open. But um, through a series of life events, um, reading a book, Purpose Driven Life, uh, and even watching an, an atheist documentary, I started to grapple with just the bigger questions of life. And it wasn't only about purpose and meaning, but I started to feel the crushing weight of my own sin. I mean, I never had a criminal record, but I, you know, I know you all know that that's not what it takes to be a sinful person. I just felt this real increasing sense of the weight of my own sin, and I was wondering what to do with that. I was living in Wellington at the time. The work, the, the job I was in, sent me to Auckland uh, for an eight-week project, and that'll give you a lot of time to to think about your your life. And so those feelings just started to intensify. And I remember um, it was one Friday afternoon as the office was closing up. I prayed, I think was my first prayer ever. And I said to God, if any of what I'm reading in Purpose Driven Life is real, I need to know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with it. So I packed up my laptop, got ready to leave. And just then um, someone in the office said to me, uh, 
random question. Don't really know how to ask this, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. Uh, as you know, it's Mother's Day on Sunday. Would you like to come with my husband and I to our church Mother's Day service? And um, it was the fastest yes I'd ever um, said at that point. And so went to the church, um, listened to the message, ended up talking with the pastor at the end of the service, and it was really then that he invited me to say a prayer. And I mean, you know, I, I had no idea what I was kind of committing to, um, but it all seemed to make sense. And so said a prayer, and it was a very significant kind of m- moment. You know, a, a lot had a lot changed. It, you know, I kind of felt it'll sound strange, but the, the washing of the blood of Jesus, that, that started to make sense to me and feel real. Uh, then uh, fast forward a week later, I was heading back to Wellington. These um, people who had invited me to church now became, had become friends in that week, and they were just encouraging me to be planted in a good church in Wellington. That was the next step, um, which is good for me because I do need, I'm a person that really responds to, to steps about what to do. And so um, I just figured I'd be, you know, I'd be on Google, find a church in Wellington, go along and join. Um, the very first morning, having arrived back in Wellington, on my way to work, and I met a homeless guy on, on Cuba Street. And anyway, got talking to him. He wanted to know if I was a Christian. I said, yes, I thought I was. He wanted to know which church I attended. I said, I hadn't found one yet. And then he invited me to his church. And he said, he gave me the address and the time. And, uh, and I said, great, I'll see you then. And then the rest is history from there. I got planted into a good church. And um, so that was, that was, again, a very significant invitation to just be planted so that I wasn't kind of hanging out there. And then the very last story I'll share, just because there's a short community connection to that early part of my story. Um, I'd known uh, Neil and Elaine Human long before I went to church and long before they went to church. And um, they sent me an email saying they were coming down to Wellington. Would I like to meet up with them with coffee for a coffee? And I said, yes, I'd, I'd love that because, you know, I'm very fond of them. Um, but I distinctly remember dreading that moment because, I mean, I'd known Neil best. And if you know Neil, man of reason, a man of science, I thought, how am I going to actually explain what's been a very significant thing for me? You know, now I'm, I'm religious. And I thought, how am I going to explain this to Neil? <laughs> and I did dread that. But uh, it ended up being fine because they beat me to the punch to say, hey, they've, they've actually started going to a church. And um, I remember them going on and on how good the pastor was. And um, <laughs> But yeah, it just took it just took all the tension out of that. But that was also significant for me because you know Neil's a man who I deeply respected. You know his intellect and um, and that just allowed me to believe actually that the gospel is something that makes sense at all levels of 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 life and is not antithetical to reason, to science, to logic. It actually embraces it and makes more sense because of it. The end. <laughs> Good job, guys. Well done. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Sarah, for sharing your stories. Every story is different, eh? Every story is different. And you can just see the journey, the different factors along the way, the different influences along the way. Every story is unique. Thank you, guys. So uh, I want to encourage you to learn to listen to your story. And even over morning tea today, share your story with someone. You know, dredge it up from the memory banks. Share your, if you're a follower of Jesus, share your own story with someone else and just listen back to it. It'll encourage them. It'll encourage your own heart. And you might be here this morning and, and you listen to these stories and you think, you know, I'm actually still on this journey. I'm still on this journey of faith. And I've, I've never quite gotten to that point uh, where I've, I've really entrusted my life to Jesus. And maybe, and this is the beautiful way that God works, this morning can be a step on your journey. Listening to someone else's story can be a step on your own journey and then your story becomes part of someone else's story and on it goes. But I just don't want to overlook the fact there may be some of you here today and this is a step for you. This is a significant day, a significant step for you, and this will become part of your story. And I want to just encourage you today to take that step. 
Maybe that step is asking a question today, having a conversation with someone today, beginning a conversation with God today. Maybe you feel like you've been on the journey for a long time, investigating and seeking and it's, things have kind of been building. I want to encourage you to take a next step today. Maybe you're here and that next step for you is taking the ultimate step of entrusting your life to Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're ready to take that step and you know that today is your day. I want to encourage you to take that step. There is nothing more that needs to be done for you to take that step. You don't need to have all of your questions answered. You never will. You certainly don't need to have your life together. Ask the rest of us. It doesn't work that way. We come to Christ because we don't have our lives together and we desperately need his grace. But if you're in that space today and you know that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, I want to urge you not to silence that, but to step in, to step in and acknowledge that voice and receive that offer of eternal life that Jesus makes. You can do that by acknowledging and owning up to your own sin, the brokenness in your life that we all have, asking God to forgive your sin, and he will do that because of Jesus, and receiving his invitation of new life, eternal life, it's what the Bible calls being born again. And today, this very day, you can be born again. If you're not quite sure what that looks like, how to do that, what to do, please come and talk to one of us after. There'll be some of us just over to the left here. We'd love to talk with you. But even now, I just feel led to pray. And I want to just pray a prayer that might encapsulate a bit of where you're at if that's your journey. And if you want to pray along with me as, as I do that, just, just in, in your mind, that's fine. Do that. And maybe this reflects something of what's in your heart. So let's do that as we prepare ourselves for communion this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today just as we are. We can't hide ourselves from you. You know everything about us. You see everything about us. You see our past. You see my present. You see my future. And so today, Jesus, I come to you just as I am. And I acknowledge to you, God, that I am a sinful person, that I have broken your law, but more importantly, God, I've broken your heart. Lord, I've fallen short of the person that you've made me to be and created me to be. And I acknowledge that today. I own up to that today, Jesus. But God, I thank you that you have not left me in this hopeless place, but you have found a way to come and reach me, that you have come from heaven to earth, that you've come all this way to seek me out, to come and find me, to come and save me. You've gone all the way to the cross, Jesus, and there... You paid the full price for all of my sin. And I thank you for that, Jesus. And I thank you that because of that now, I can be forgiven. I want to ask you, Jesus, today to forgive me for all of my sin, past, present, future. And enable me to step into this new life, this new relationship with you, where I'm finally coming home. I thank you, God, that your arms are open wide to me today, that you are a loving Father whose greatest desire is to welcome me home. And so I step into your arms today, and I want to say that I am yours. My life is in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, 
or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.